Section 12 of The Tomb of Tutankhamun by Howard Carter. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Avai in July 2019. Chapter 9 Visitors and the Press. Archaeology under the limelight is a new and rather bewildering experience for most of us. In the past, we have gone about our business happily enough intensely interested in it ourselves but not expecting other folk to be more than tepidly polite about it and now all of a sudden we find the world takes an interest in us an interest so intense and so avid for details that special correspondents at large salaries have to be sent to interview us report our every movement and hide round corners to surprise a secret out of us it is, as I said, a little bewildering for us, not to say embarrassing, and we wonder sometimes just exactly how and why it has all come about. We may wonder, but I think it would puzzle anyone to give an exact answer to the question. One must suppose that at the time the discovery was made, the general public was in a state of profound boredom with news of reparations, conferences and mandates, and craved for some new topic of conversation. The idea of buried treasure, too, is one that appeals to most of us. Whatever the reason, or combination of reasons, it is quite certain that, once the initial Times dispatch had been published, no power on earth could shelter us from the light of publicity that beat down upon us. We were helpless, and had to make the best of it. The embarrassing side of it was soon brought home to us in no uncertain manner. Telegrams poured in from every quarter of the globe. Within a week or two, letters began to follow them, a deluge of correspondence that has persisted ever since. Amazing literature, some of it. Beginning with letters of congratulation, it went on to offers of assistance, ranging all the way from tomb planning to personal valeting, Requests for souvenirs, even a few grains of sand from above the tomb would be received so thankfully. Fantastic money offers, from moving picture rights to copyright on fashions of dress. Advice on the preservation of antiquities and the best method of appeasing evil spirits and elementals. Press clippings, tracts, would-be facetious communications, stern denunciations of sacrilege, claims of relationship, Surely you must be the cousin who lived in Camberwell in 1893, and whom we have never heard of since, and so on, and so on. Fatuous communications of this sort came tumbling in upon us at the rate of ten or fifteen a day, right through the winter. There is a whole sackful of them, and an interesting psychological study they would make, if one had the time to give to them. What, for instance, is one to make of a person who solemnly inquires whether the discovery of the tomb throws any light on the alleged Belgian atrocities in the Congo. Next came our friends, the newspaper correspondents, who flocked to the valley in large numbers and devoted all their social gifts, and they were considerable, towards dispelling any lingering remains of loneliness or desert boredom that we might still have left to us. They certainly did their work with some thoroughness, 
for each owed it to himself and to his paper to get daily information, and we in Egypt were delighted when we heard Lord Carnarvon's decision to place the whole matter of publicity in the hands of the Times. Another, and perhaps the most serious of all the embarrassments that notoriety brought upon us, was the fatal attraction the tomb had for visitors. It was not that we wanted to be secretive, nor had any objection to visitors as such. As a matter of fact, there are few things more pleasant than showing one's work to appreciative people. But as the situation developed, it became very clear that, unless something was done to discourage it, we should spend the entire season playing showmen and never get any work done at all. It was surely a new chapter in the history of the valley. Tourist visitors it had always known, but heretofore it had been a business proceeding, and not a garden party. Armed with guide-books, they had conscientiously visited as many tombs as time, or their dragomen would allow them, bustled through their lunch, and been hurried off to a further debauch of sightseeing elsewhere. This winter, dragomen and time schedules were disregarded alike, and many of the ordinary sites were left unvisited. The tomb drew like a magnet. From a very early hour in the morning the pilgrimage began. Visitors arrived on donkeys, in sand-carts, and in two-horse cabs, and proceeded to make themselves at home in the valley for the day. Round the top of the upper level of the tomb there was a low wall, and here they each staked out a claim and established themselves, waiting for something to happen. Sometimes it did, more often it did not, but it seemed to make no difference to their patience. There they would sit the whole morning, reading, talking, knitting, photographing the tomb and each other, quite satisfied if at the end they could get a glimpse of anything. Great was the excitement always when word was passed up that something was to be brought out of the tomb. Books and knitting were thrown aside, and the whole battery of cameras was cleared for action and directed at the entrance passage. We were really alarmed sometimes, lest the whole wall should give way and a crowd of visitors be precipitated into the mouth of the tomb. From above, it must really have been an imposing spectacle to see strange objects like the great gilt animals from the couches emerging gradually from the darkness into the light of day. We, who were bringing them up, were much too anxious about their safety in the narrow passage to think about such things ourselves, but a preliminary gasp and then a quick buzz of exclamations brought home to us the effect it had upon the watchers above. To these, the casual visitors who contented themselves with watching from the top, there could be no objection, and whenever possible we brought things out of the tomb without covers for their special benefit. Our real embarrassment was caused by the numbers of people who, for one reason or another, had to be shown over the tomb itself. This was a difficulty that came upon us so gradually and insidiously that for a long time we none of us realized what the inevitable result must be, but in the end it brought the work practically to a standstill. At the beginning we had, of course, the formal inspections of the departmental officials concerned. These, naturally, we welcomed. In the same way, we were always glad to receive other archaeologists. 
they had a right to visit the tomb, and we were delighted to show them everything there was to be seen. So far there was no difficulty, and there never would be any difficulty. It was with the letters of introduction that the trouble began. They were written, literally in hundreds, by our friends, we never realized before how many we had, by our friends' friends, by people who had a real claim upon us, and by people who had less than none, for diplomatic reasons, by ministers or departmental officials in Cairo, to say nothing of self-written introductions, which either bluntly demanded admittance to the tomb, or showed quite clearly and ingeniously how unreasonable it would be to refuse them. One ingenious person even intercepted a telegraph boy and tried to make the delivery of the message an excuse for getting in. The desire to visit the tomb became an obsession with the tourist, and in the Luxor hotels the question of ways and means became a regular topic of conversation. Those who had seen the tomb boasted of the fact openly, and to many of those who had not, it became a matter of personal pride to effect an introduction somehow. To such lengths were things carried that certain tourist agencies in America actually advertised a trip to Egypt to see the tomb. All this, as may be imagined, put us in a very awkward position. There were certain visitors whom for diplomatic reasons we had to admit, and others whom we could not refuse without giving serious offence, not only to themselves, but to the third parties whose introduction they brought. Where were we to draw the line? Obviously, something had to be done, for, as I said, the whole of the work in the tomb was being rapidly brought to a standstill. Eventually, we solved the difficulty by running away. Ten days after the opening of the sealed door, we filled up the tomb, locked and barred the laboratory, and disappeared for a week. This made a complete break. When we resumed work, the tomb itself was irrevocably buried, and we made it a fixed rule that no visits were to be made to the laboratory at all. Now this whole question of visitors is a matter of some delicacy. We have already gotten to a good deal of hot water over it, and have been accused of lack of consideration, ill manners, selfishness, boorishness, and quite a number of other things, so perhaps it would be as well to make a clear statement of the difficulties involved. These are two. In the first place, the presence of a number of visitors creates serious danger to the objects themselves, danger that we, who are responsible for them, have no right to let them undergo. How could it be otherwise? The tomb is small and crowded, and sooner or later, it actually happened more than once last year, a false step or a hasty movement on the part of a visitor will do some piece of absolutely irreparable damage. It is not the fault of the visitor, for he does not and cannot know the exact position or condition of every object. It is our fault for letting him be there. The unfortunate part of it is that the more interested and the more enthusiastic the visitor is, the more likely he is to be the cause of damage. He gets excited, and in his enthusiasm over one object he is very liable to step back into or knock against another. 
even if no actual damage is caused the passage of large parties of visitors through the tomb stirs up the dust and that in itself is bad for the objects that is the first and obvious danger the second due to the loss of actual working time that visitors cause is not so immediately apparent but it is in some ways even more serious this will seem a terribly exaggerated view to the individual visitor who will wonder what difference the half hour that he or she consumed could make to the whole season's work perfectly true so far as that particular half hour is concerned but what of the other nine visitors or groups of visitors who come on the same day by strict arithmetic he and they have occupied five hours of our working day in actual fact it is considerably more than five for in the short intervals between visitors it is impossible to settle down to any serious piece of work to all intents and purposes a complete day has been lost now there were many days last season in which we actually did have ten parties of visitors and if we had given way to every demand and avoided any possibility of giving offence there would not have been a day in which we did not far exceed the ten in other words there would have been whole weeks at a time in which no work was done at all as it actually worked out last winter we gave visitors a quarter of our working season this resulted in our having to prolong our work into the hot weather a whole month longer than we had intended and the heat of the valley in may is not a thing to look forward to with equanimity and is anything but inducive to good work there was much more at stake however than our own personal inconvenience there was actual danger for the objects themselves delicate antiquities are extremely sensitive to any change of temperature and have to be watched most carefully in the present case the change from the close atmosphere of the antechamber to the variable temperature outside and the dry airiness of the tomb we used as a laboratory was a very appreciable one and certain of the objects were affected by it it was extremely important that preservatives should be applied at the very first possible moment and in some cases there was need of experimental treatment which had to be watched very carefully the danger of constant interruption is obvious and i need not labor the point what would a chemist think if you asked him to break off a delicate experiment to show you round his laboratory what would be the feelings of a surgeon if you interrupted him in the middle of an operation and what about the patient for the matter of that what would a businessman say what wouldn't he say if he had a succession of ten parties of visitors in the course of the morning each expecting to be shown all over the office yet surely the claims of archaeology for consideration are just as great as those of any other form of scientific research or even dare i say it of that of the sacred science of money-making itself why because we carry on our work in unfrequented regions instead of in a crowded city are we to be considered churlish for objecting to constant interruptions i suppose the reason really is that in popular opinion archaeology is not work at all excavation is a sort of super tourist amusement carried out with the excavator's own money if he is rich enough or with other people's money if he can persuade them to subscribe it 
and all he has to do is to enjoy life in a beautiful winter climate and pay a gang of natives to find things for him. It is the dilettante archaeologist, the man who rarely does any work with his own hands, but as often as not is absent when the actual discovery is made, who is largely responsible for this opinion. The serious excavator's life is frequently monotonous, and, as I hope to show in the next chapter, quite as hard-working as that of any other member of society. I have written more than I intended on this subject, but really it is a very serious matter for us. We have an opportunity in this tomb such as no archaeologists ever had before, but if we are to take full advantage of it, and failure to do so will earn for us the just execration of every future generation of archaeologists, it is absolutely essential that we be left to carry on the work without interruption. It is not as if our visitors were all keen on archaeology, or even mildly interested in it. Too many of them are attracted by mere curiosity, or, even worse, by a desire to visit the tomb because it is the thing to do. They want to be able to talk at large about it to their friends at home, or crow over less fortunate tourists who have not managed to secure an introduction themselves. Can you imagine anything more maddening when you are completely absorbed in a difficult problem than to give up half an hour of your precious time to a visitor who has pulled every conceivable kind of wire to gain admittance, and then to hear him say quite audibly as he goes away, Ah, there wasn't much to see after all. That actually happened last winter, and more than once. In the coming season there will in any case be much less for visitors to see. It will be absolutely impossible to get into the burial chamber, for every available inch of space will be occupied by scaffolding, and the removal of the shrine, section by section, will be much too ticklish an operation to admit of interruptions. In the laboratory we propose to deal with only one object at a time, which will be packed and got rid of as soon as we have finished with it. Six cases of objects from the tomb are already on exhibition in the Cairo Museum, and we would earnestly beg visitors to Egypt to content themselves with these, and with what they can see from the outside of the tomb, and not to set their hearts on getting into the tomb itself. Those who are genuinely interested in archaeology for its own sake will be the first to realize that the request is a reasonable one. The others, the idly curious, who look on the tomb as a sideshow and Tutankhamun as a mere topic of conversation, have no rights in the matter and need no consideration. Whatever our discoveries next season may be, we trust that we may be allowed to deal with them in a proper and dignified manner. End of section 12